Okay, there we go. There we go. Thanks to our children and worship leaders and to our worship team for a very moving time of singing together this morning. Before we begin, can I pray for us? Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to gather together as your people. Thank you for sustaining your people in their worship for hundreds and hundreds of years. We pray that all that we do this morning would bring glory to your name. It is your glory that we seek in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, or perhaps if you have and forget, we are in a short series called God Calls. It's week three, and today we come to the story of Solomon building and dedicating the first temple. I have included a picture here on the slide of the first temple so that you have in your mind an image of what this project was. Not a small undertaking, was it? Very, very large, beautiful temple. Well, the building of the first temple was a turning point in the history of God's people. It dramatically changed the way that God's people lived and worshipped for hundreds of years thereafter. And it's very fitting that it happens to come today. The story from the Old Testament comes today because as Pastor Brandon mentioned, today we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of another major turning point in the history of God's people, the Protestant Reformation. It is because of this slew of events that happened 500 years ago that we are here today, worshiping like we are, in this space like we are, all due to this changing event that happened 500 years ago, just as the temple was a changing event. And you might also know that this season happens to be for us as a congregation and for the church as a whole in the entire country of the United States, a turning point. Church historians note that about every 500 years, the church goes through a reformation. The church goes through a time in which God changes the way that things are done to better carry out God's mission in the world that God so loves. Most church leaders agree that the church is in a time of reformation, a time of rethinking and reforming the ways that God is calling us to be and to seek out the lost in our world, how to be more effective witnesses for God. For some, this can sound really intimidating, can it not? As I'm sure it did for the people who were so used to a certain way of church being up to the 1500s, and they thought, this is really scary. But friends, can I invite us to view this as an exciting adventure? These are exciting times. I and Pastor Brandon and so many others believe that God is doing something beautiful in the church. That God is calling us to perhaps make some changes within our hearts, perhaps within our structures that that move us more into the likeness of Christ, that make us more effective in our witness to the world. Consider maybe 500 years from now, our brothers and sisters down the line will be celebrating the changes that happened in our era. Wouldn't that be something? So I encourage you, as you think about 
what is happening in our world at large and in the church at large to take a posture of perhaps excitement and adventure, that perhaps God is doing something new, that God is turning over a new leaf. And these ideas about change, they take on real practical implications for us in this congregation, do they not? These aren't just ideas. What will our youth discipleship look like for coming years? We're in a time of transition. How can we more effectively connect with our community in a world that doesn't view church the same way it used to? What about our physical space? Should we make changes or not? These are all questions we are considering, and at times they can seem daunting. Couldn't God just beam down some exact answers about budgets and buildings and staff and programs? That would be really nice, wouldn't it? Just a a blueprint of everything we should do forever. That would be awesome. But friends, God doesn't seem to work that way, does he? Rather, God tends to focus on our hearts. If you missed the sermon last week that Brandon, Pastor Brandon preached, I encourage you to listen to that. But God tends to focus not on these outward things, but first and foremost on our hearts. In particular, God calls us to focus on the motives within our hearts. What is it that motivates us to do what we do? Before we answer any specific questions, first we have to get to the heart. What is motivating us to do what we do? as individual Christians, and as a whole church body. It was motivation that lay behind the Reformation. Well, friends, when the motives of our hearts are pure, then we're usually head in the right direction. Now, today's text, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with 1 Kings 5 and the temple? What is, what is she talking about? Well, today is a story of a king who had mixed motives. These mixed motives lead to some very mixed results, which we are going to explore. There were some very positive results of the temple, of Solomon's temple, but there are also some really negative ones. In this story, as we explore these, invite us to consider also our motives personally and together as a church. This story also challenges us to look really carefully for God's hand amidst the mixed human motives, to see how God works out God's beautiful purposes all for God's glory, even sometimes when we don't get it right. Okay, so we're almost to the scripture reading. We're almost there. But before I read, I want to fill in some gaps from last week so that you have the context of what's going on in the building of this beautiful temple. So last week, God told Samuel to anoint a little boy named David, that David would be the new king over Israel. And Samuel told, God told Samuel not to look at the outward appearances, but at the heart. And David's heart was in the right place. David had pure motives. You're going to see this theme over and over, pure motives. And this is why scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. That's what makes him a great king. Now, when David becomes king, he inherits the previous setup for worship space. So see, up until that time, that's the temple, up until the time of the temple, God had dwelt in a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a portable tent 
And it housed the Ark of the Covenant, the, the tablets that had the law written on them. The tabernacle, this was God's idea. God laid out these plans and said, this is the way that I am going to be with you. This is the way, this portable tent, that I am going to assure you of my presence with you wherever you go. And God was content with the tabernacle. But King David, when he comes to reign, he wants to do something grand for God. He wants to honor God by building God a permanent house made of cedar, like the palace that he was living in. He wants something greater than this for God. But God says, no, David, no, no, you can't do that because your hands are too bloody with war. You can't build me a house. Your descendant can do that, but you cannot. So David, so God continues dwelling in the tabernacle during David's reign. Well, David dies and his son Solomon takes the throne. That's where we pick up today in our scripture reading, 1 Kings 5. If you have your Bibles and would like to open, we will be in 1 Kings 5, verses 1 through 5, and then skip over to chapter 8. Before we read, let me pray again. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive whatever you have for us today. Give us clean hearts to desire your honor in all that we do. Amen. Okay, we're finally there to our scripture reading. You got the context? Yes? Okay. So, 1 Kings 5, verse 1. Now, King Hiram of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend to David. Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to my father, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. We're going to skip to chapter 8, verse 1, but I'll fill in what happens in these chapters. They're just details about the building of the temple, how Solomon goes about it, and we're going to come back to those later. But then we pick up in verse 8. Then Solomon assembled, in chapter 8, assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribe, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the people of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the festival in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests carried the Ark. So they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, that was the tabernacle. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. 
The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses had placed there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. This is the word of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, what do we have to learn today, 21st century America and the church, about Solomon's building of the temple? This event that was a major turning point in the history of God's people. Well, when, we, when we look at other passages that also describe the building of the temple, we learn a lot about motives and their consequences. Because as we'll see, King Solomon, he has some mixed motives going into this project. Some were very good, some were not so good. And as a result, we're going to see that the temple had both good and bad results. So friends, motives are very important. Motives are what lie within our hearts, as we learned last week. God is not most concerned with outward structures, but with our hearts. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart from everything you do flows from it. So what is it that is going on in Solomon's heart as he builds this temple? What are his motives? What can we learn from his motives? Well, on the positive side, Solomon wants to honor God. His father, David, whose idea this was, had this idea to honor God through the building of a house made of cedar. And so Solomon, he wants to honor his father and to honor God through the building of this temple. And these are very good motives. You know what? God blesses these motives. After the temple is built, after seven years, God tells Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. God blesses it, and he puts his presence there, and the temple becomes a place of great honor for God. It becomes a center of Israel's life together, a place where they have central worship. And the temple is a tremendous blessing to Israel for hundreds of years. So God blesses these pure motives. Many of us might get these motives. We saw this in our text. We might understand this already. But I want to point out that there's also a shadow side to the temple project. And it arose out of some selfish motives in Solomon's heart. So for one, it appears that Solomon was quite interested in inflating his own ego at the same time. You see, along with the temple, Solomon also built a very large palace for himself. The king's palace took 13 years to build. Did you catch that? Seven years for God's temple, 13 years for King Solomon's palace, almost twice as long. 
So there's some ego issues going on here. Second, Solomon is also really influenced by the peer pressure of his cultural moment. You see, in that day, the custom was that when a new king comes to the throne, he is expected to first build a palace for himself and then also build a temple for his God to dwell in. That's just what kings did. So Solomon, when he comes to reign, he doesn't necessarily need either of these things. King David had already built a beautiful palace. He could have lived there. God never asked for the temple. God had made plans for the tabernacle, and God seems to be content there. But back in the day, that's just what kings did. As soon as they get on the throne, they're expected to undergo a palace and a temple. That's why, if you caught it at the beginning of our scripture, chapter 5, King Hiram of Tyre comes to visit Solomon, or rather sends his servants to Solomon. This is something we can just skip over, but it's, it's important to know what's going on here. It says King Hiram is, was a friend of David. And he, he is a friend, but he's not just like, buddy, buddy, we play ball together, friend. King Hiram is David's economic ally. You see, King Hiram's land was full of cedar and cypress trees that are very good for building. So King Hiram had been the one to provide all the cedars for David when David built his palace. So as soon as Solomon comes to the throne, Hiram is quick to send some servants over. Hey, when are you going to get started on that building project? I've got some trees for you. So right out of the gates, Solomon is feeling this pressure from another king. Hey, this is just what kings do. Let's get going. I've got the materials. Let's make a partnership. Right out of the gates, he's feeling this pressure, this peer pressure, to do what everyone else is doing. So with this broader picture, we can see inside Solomon's heart a little bit, right? There are some mixed motives going on. He wants to honor God. He wants to honor David. Good. That is a pure motive. But we also see that he's also kind of wanting to inflate his own ego to bring honor to himself. And he's also kind of just fitting with some peer pressure. This is just what kings do, so this is what I'm going to do. So you might say, so what? So he builds a temple. That's good. It, who really cares about if he had some mixed things going on? But I mentioned before that there are some negative consequences from these selfish motives. So we're going to look at some of the results that happen. First, I mentioned the positive results. I don't want to overlook these. God does receive a place of honor in Israel. And the people have a central place for worship. These are very positive results of his pure motives. But the selfish motives have some results too. So these results, they don't honor God, and they have some really devastating effects. So I think it's important to look at these too. So first, Solomon enslaves the Israelites for his building project. Did you know that? Solomon is so set on building this really awesome palace in this really awesome temple, partly to boost his own ego and to get it done as quickly as possible, that he goes to work enslaving his own people. We read in 1 Kings 5.13, 
King Solomon conscripted forced labor out of all of Israel. The levy numbered 30,000 men. Solomon also had 70,000 laborers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 supervisors who were over their work. You want to know the word for forced labor that's used here in the Hebrew? It's mas. You want to know where else that shows up? In the Hebrew scriptures, Exodus, where it talks about the Israelites being slaves of Pharaoh. When they cry out to God to be released from their brutal, back-breaking work that they are being forced to do against their will every day. Friends, that is what Solomon did to his own people. What Pharaoh did to the Israelites. So Solomon wants to honor God, but he's also got his ego wrapped up in this, and it leads him to enslave his own people. Now, this forced labor, it continues for decades and decades, and as you can imagine, it really upsets the Israelites. Yet Solomon doesn't lighten their load, and nor would his son, his kingly successor. And as a result, the nation of Israel splits in two. They have a civil war, if you will. So God's people, once one united family, split in two. Which all creeps back to some of these selfish motives that Solomon had, which led to some of the selfish ways he carried out his plans. Have you ever been through a split? In a family? In a church? In a friendship? It's really painful, isn't it? It is a really negative consequence. And it all resulted from some of these impure motives that were lurking behind the surface. So that's a real damper, these negative effects, right? (laughs) Kind of sad. But I'm going to bring us around to God's grace because it always ends with God's grace. So you want to know the really incredible thing. I told you all this dark shadow side of the temple, and it is dark, and it needs to be named and lamented. But the incredible thing is that God still shows up. Did you hear that in the text? Despite this messiness and sin that is going on, God still fills the temple with his glory. God still shows up in the temple because, friends, God will fulfill God's purposes even through our mixed motives. God works even amidst our mixed motives. And for hundreds of years after building the temple, God continues to provide his presence, even when God's people have mixed motives for being there, as sometimes we can have mixed motives for being in church, right? God still shows up. God still works. Because, brothers and sisters, God's grace and mercy are relentless. That is what the Reformation is all about, that it's not about us earning our way. If we had to have exactly pure motives for every single thing we did, if our hearts had to be exactly clean like God's for everything we did, for God to ever do anything, we would be done. We we can't. We all have sin lurking within us. But God is greater, and God's grace is greater, and that is what the Reformation is all about. Friends, God does not give up on his people. Even when our hearts swirl with impure motives, God still works in us and through us. Amen? 
Friends, even in the 1500s, when the church had reached its height of corruption, God did not take away his presence. God still was at work, and that's why we're here today. Even today, when so many of us have corruption lurking in our hearts, when we have mixed motives going into much of what we do, God does not take his Holy Spirit from us. God still works in and through us. God does not withdraw. God does not give up. God rather continues to call us again and again to examine our hearts where God dwells because we are the new temple. We'll get to that in the New Testament. But God invites us again and again to let God reform us so that we might get rid of these impure motives and better honor God in all that we do. Now I'm going to go back to our text and point out something really fascinating about the building of the temple. Did you know that God is silent throughout the entire project? For seven years, Solomon is building and building and building and building, and God doesn't say a peep. God is silent. That is until the temple is done. Solomon is ready to dedicate the temple, and God finally says something. If you were Solomon, I think you'd be pretty eager to hear what he has to say, right? God, do you approve? Do you disapprove? What, what do you think about this? Look at all this that I've been doing. You know, I don't know what God says. He doesn't mention a word about the temple. He doesn't mention a word, positive or negative, about this. Rather, this is what God says. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It turns out that God wasn't so concerned about what Solomon was concerned about. All along, God is most concerned about his people and their hearts. God wants first and foremost for our hearts to be pure, for us to humble ourselves before the Lord, to pray, to seek God's face, to turn from our sins, that is to turn from our selfish motives. That's what God is most concerned about. So friends, what might this mean practically for us as we make decisions as individuals and corporately as the church? Well, first and foremost, we are reminded to consider the motives of our hearts. Let this story of Solomon's temple be in the background of our minds for the decisions we make. Are we seeking to honor God? And if so, let's follow God's word to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God's ways in all that we do. Because that's how we honor God. The rest will follow when our hearts are right before God. Our passage in Second Chronicles also says to turn from our motives that are impure, any motives that are wanting to inflate our own ego or just fit into the peer pressure of what everyone else is doing. And friends, these are real. They are at work within all of our hearts. They can often go unchecked, but I encourage us to look for them. Pray for God to release them. 
So whenever you're faced with a decision this week or in the weeks to come, pray about this. Do a heart check about your motives. Consider these questions. But friends, it's not just all about us. Because if it was, we'd be in a world of trouble. The good news, my friends, we're always going to end with the good news. The good news is that God's love and grace and mercy are relentless. Even when we don't get it right, even when we've got these things swirling around and we don't even recognize it, even when sin and corruption are alive and well, God doesn't give up on the world that God so loves. God won't take his presence from us, the church. God will fulfill God's purposes. God still works in and through his people, all for his glory, until that final day when Christ returns and will set all things right once and for all. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us across the centuries, for the ways that your heart never changes, even when our cultural moments change. So God, may we seek your heart in all that we do. Make our hearts like yours. Give us motives that are your motives, and that from that, everything else would fall into place in all that we do that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.